We all enter the world as strangers to purpose and meaning. Meaning must be discovered. And so answers are given to us, given to us by our parents, our family, our social and religious institutions, and even given to us by mass media before we're even old enough to be aware of the questions. Geography alone might be the greatest determinant in how one comes to see the world. Consider how different the answers to the ultimate questions of meaning and purpose are for, say, a girl born into a lower caste Hindu family in Calcutta in the 17th century compared to someone like myself who was born into a lower middle-class evangelical Christian family in suburban Detroit in 1983. Whether in the form of one of the world's major religions from antiquity or in the form of new post-enlightenment religious expressions of liberalism, secularism, or materialism, we are born into meaning-making narratives. Through no choice of our own, we are born into a religion. One of the most perplexing questions to me as a kid growing up in the church was what happened to the Native Americans who lived on this continent long before people ever brought the name Jesus to their ears. And boy, to make matters worse, the name of Jesus that was brought to their ears was typically also brought to them at the end of a sword or a gun. What happened to a first century Taoist living in ancient China who had no possible chance of hearing the name of Jesus? I had always heard that God so loved the world. I mean, that was the first Bible passage you memorized as a kid. But what does that mean for these people? Does the first century Taoist or the Native American living in the Middle Ages or even the young boy who was raised in a Muslim family in Syria but died in the rubble of another bombing just weeks ago, did they have any chance of finding the way to God? Did all of their genuine searching for meaning and purpose come up void because they had never heard the Christian gospel? Are they at fault for believing the answers they were given? Perhaps an even more poignant question is this. What kind of God initiates a redemptive plan in history where the vast majority of the human race dies separated from him because they did not have reasonable access to the means of salvation? Now, these questions are nothing new, but globalization has reminded us of their urgency. We are frequently interacting with people who have come from different places of the world. They have family members that live in places that just by sheer geography make them statistically unlikely to be a Christian. You might go, well, hey, Paul, this isn't that hard of a question. That's what missionaries are for. It's missionaries' jobs to bring the good news to all of these different people. And I go, hang on, this isn't that easy. Does God's entire plan of redemption and salvation rest on human shoulders? Does it rest on the shoulders of missionaries? I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time with that for a few reasons. One is, there was quite a bit of time where many places of the world had people living and dying well after Jesus' death and resurrection before missionaries got there. So, like, what happened to those people? Again, in the case of the Native Americans. Another problem I have with this is 
What happens when the missionaries showed up and they did things that a lot of these colonial empires did, which was, hey, you need to convert or we're going to wipe out your civilization. Oh, and you know what? We kind of might just assimilate you through the process of conversion anyway. So many instances throughout, especially colonial history, whether it's uh, British colonialism, French colonialism, or more modern American colonialism, missionaries have been used as agents of colonial powers to produce a cultural change that makes them more receptive to assimilation and hegemonic control. I mean, if you're an indigenous person in the United States, and your ancestors marched in the Trail of Tears, forced by people claiming to follow Jesus of Nazareth, probably not going to be too wild about hearing the message that people bring to you who claim to be followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, some who find it both unreasonable and unbiblical to believe that God has allowed most of humanity to die without access to salvation have posited especially in recent years, an alternative, an alternative to remedy this sort of cognitive dissonance. And this alternative became really popular with the publication of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, in the mid-2000s. The alternative that Bell proposed was Christian universalism. And this sort of Christian universalism has become really, really popular among especially people my age and younger who have long wrestled with these questions and maybe found that the answers that they had been given made God seem like, boy, I don't really know if you want the world (laughs) to be saved if this was your plan. Now, while I can appreciate the perspective of someone like Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, David Bentley Hart, and to a lesser degree, a Rob Bell, who proposed this sort of universalist hope, I'm not convinced by it. If you are, that's okay. I'm not going to tie you to a stake and burn you or force you to recant or anything like that. But what I do want to propose is an alternative, an alternative to universalism and an alternative to something we could call ecclesiocentric exclusivism. I actually believe there's another option. It's the option that I see most warranted and supported in the biblical narrative And I think it's the option that the early church held to. So in today's episode, I'm going to begin to lay out this third way and why I think this third way might be the most helpful, the most biblically faithful way to think about salvation in a pluralistic world. My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. Today's episode is made possible by the generous support from listeners like you. Stay tuned at the end of today's episode to find out how you can support this podcast by becoming a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, where you can also get access to things like bonus Q&A episodes, participate in discussion forums for each episode, and uh, get involved in other things like monthly Zoom calls, uh, group Zoom calls, or one-on-one Zoom calls where we can talk through some of the questions, the things you're wrestling with as you go on your own journey, navigating theology and meaning. Before we can deal with questions like who might salvation be accessible to? How does one receive it? We first have to define what salvation is. Christian theology and its various expressions, whether they are 
found in the Catholic tradition or in Eastern Orthodoxy or Protestantism or whatever your Christian tradition might be. When we talk about salvation, we have to confess that within the various traditions, there hasn't been a univocal definition of salvation. But within that debate and discussion, what is salvation? There are two questions, right? The question is, what, are, what is one saved from and what is one saved to? Okay? So if we're talking about salvation, we're talking about, well, well, all right, well, we need salvation. Why? Well, we are saved from something and we're saved to something. To the first question, the question, what, what is one saved from? There has been a general consensus among all of these differing traditions that humans are in need of saving from some destructive end. Now, depending on your theological flavor. It might be eternal conscious torment in hell. It might be God's wrath. It might be Satan. It might be uh, annihilation. There are all sorts of differing emphases, differing answers to the question of the, the primary question of what is one saved from by Christ and in Christ and through Christ. So, Again, your, your different theological denominational background might emphasize something different, but everybody believes there is something we are saved from in salvation, even if you want to just go the route, and the, I don't think it's exclusively this, but you might have some. I talked about Rob Bell earlier. Rob Bell kind of eventually came to the point of just going, well, I think the message of salvation is essentially to save us from the ends of our destructive choices. And I go, okay, well, I think that's certainly part of it. I don't think that's all of it. But again, the point is there's a lot of debate among differing Christians as to, well, what are we saved from? Where there is less debate, though, to me, this is really interesting. If we're going to compare answers to the second question, the question of what are we saved to, the answers have been far less contentious, contentious than the first answers, the answers to the first question, I should say. So you could look at Origen, Tertullian, Calvin or Zwingli, uh, Pope Francis or Patriarch Bartholomew I, or even you could go right here in my own backyard in the Twin Cities and you could compare the answers to question two between a John Piper and a Greg Boyd who would seem to disagree about almost everything else. That's an, that might be hyperbole, but you talk to these people and each of them are going to t essentially tell you the same answer. What are we saved to? We are saved to God. Yes, there's been a sort of modern rise in this kind of like folksy Christian Platonism that sees a disembodied heaven as the goal of salvation. But even if one were to sort of press adherence of this more novel soteriology further and go, hey, what are we going to be doing in these streets of gold and those per inside those pearly gates? Most would probably respond with some variation of, well, we're going to worship God there, right? I highlight this just to acknowledge that the telos of salvation for all Christians, even those who know better than this sort of like quasi-Gnostic Platonism, the answer to the question of what is one saved to? What are we saved to? The answer to that question is still God 
for all Christians of all traditions. So, as to not give disproportionate attention to tradition on this point, I I do want to highlight um, from Scripture uh, a place where we could go to in Scripture. Certainly, we can't give an over—I'm not going to give an overarching um, systematic theology on the soteriology, you know, in the in this particular podcast, because there's other things I want to focus on. But I do want to highlight something from the scriptures to help us see what the scriptures present as a clear definition of salvation and what we are saved to. Again, you could point to a bunch of other texts, and we could certainly have, we need to have a, a conversation with the entirety of the canon of scripture. But I do want to cite one section of the Gospels that I think is particularly informative in helping us understand what we are saved from and what we are saved to. And that, that starts with the book of the Bible that oftentimes when people become new followers of Jesus, they are told to start with this book, and it's the book of John. John 3, verses 4 through 7. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let's jump ahead, staying in John's Gospel get some more evidence, at least from, from, the, from John's gospel. John chapter 6, verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So, a couple of sections here, John, I just want to highlight believing in the Son. We'll talk about what does that mean that this question of what do we save to We are saved to eternal life. We are saved from things like in John 3, of course, that we wouldn't perish. Uh, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So there certainly is a sense in which we are saved from something. But the question of what are we saved to? Eternal life, eternal life. Was this some sort of like platonic disembodied heaven? No. Here is what eternal life is. We actually have John gives us like a definition of what eternal life is in John 17, verse 3. I should say Jesus through John, the author, highlights this from Jesus's words. John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we see throughout John's gospel, Jesus is presented as God's redemptive gift of salvation for humanity. He is the gift that is given for the world, for the cosmos. God seeks to save the world, to save the cosmos, not to condemn it. Christ is the means of salvation by which one participates via looking to and believing in him. Those are some of the repetitive language we see in John Humans are then saved from what? They're saved from perishing in order to be raised on the last day. So in that high priestly prayer, we again, we see Jesus define what we are saved to as the eternal life of knowing God. 
And this is no mere cognition of God facts. This isn't, this isn't Jesus saying, well, eternal life is you memorizing a bunch of propositions about God, and if you know those really well, great. No, the, John's gospel points us to a different level of union. To borrow some of the John Verveke language, it's a participatory union. It's a union with God that Jesus himself compares to the intimacy of communion experienced in the hypostatic union of the Father and the Son, and the Son, and the Father. This is what Jesus says in John 17, right? That we would all be one, you know, in Christian community, our brothers and sisters in Christ, those united to Christ, we would all be one together with Christ, that we would all be one in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. So from John's testimony, we could say that we are saved to a real ontological union with God. Now, we could certainly debate, well, what does that sort of union look like? Uh, What makes that union a real participatory union with God in a way that doesn't have us sort of uh, tread in territories of strange blasphemy, right, where we're becoming like one in the same essence as God, or saying we uh, participate in union with God in the same exact way that the Son and the Father are one, like we're, we've somehow become the Trinity in some ontological sense, right? Some of the Eastern tradition differentiated between one with God and his essence versus one with God and his energies. We won't unpack all of that now. But the point is we are saved to a real ontological union with God. And this, again, this isn't just John's testimony. Again, we could go through a whole scripture, a survey of scripture, but I will just highlight, like, for example, the testimony of those like in Second Peter, the author of Second Peter, who writes that those who, quote, through Jesus Christ have, quote, received faith are able to be what he says are participants in the divine nature. Read Second Peter 2, 1 through 4. What it, I mean, a participant in the divine nature. This is very different than knowledge of facts. This is what we are saved to. The language of ontological union is also the language of the Apostle Paul, who uses the term in Christ or in him 164 times in his epistles. So we are saved from something that we definitely want to be saved from. (laughs) We won't settle that debate right now, but we are certainly saved from something that we don't want to experience. And we are very clear from Scripture and, you know, you can read whoever you're, you know, Orthodox, not, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox, but I mean broad Orthodox Christian theologian is, we are saved to God. So the question then becomes, right, what is the means of salvation? Of course, in some broad sense, everybody says it's through Jesus Christ. But when we start getting into the particulars, of how that union with Christ happens, this is obviously where there is difference of opinion. One of the most common positions on salvation and salvation in a pluralistic world is the position that I was most familiar with in my Christian experience. It is a position that we could call ecclesiocentrism, or ecclesiocentric exclusivism. That might seem like a strange or unfamiliar term to you. 
the great theologian over at Fuller. Um, he's a contemporary theologian who's quickly become one of my favorites, Veli Mati Karkanian. I'm probably not saying his name right. But he defines ecclesiocentric exclusivism as the view that, quote, religions are not salvific or even necessarily conducive to the search for God, and salvation can only be found in the Christian church, the locus of faith in Christ. Sometimes this view is known as particularism, sometimes it's called restrictivism, sometimes it's simply called exclusivism, but there's a wide range of attitudes held by those who uh, espouse to this particular perspective and what they think of those other meaning-making narratives and religious practices outside of the church, outside of Orthodox Christianity. There have been those like the former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, Harold Linzel, who held to what we could call like a hard restrictivism, a hard exclusivism. And yet there are many other exclusivists who have held to more agnostic positions on what happens to those outside of the church, outside of Christian community, uh, and outside of what some might call the Christian faith. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Linzel was also an editor at Christianity Today and a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He once said, this is a great example of the sort of hard exclusivism, the hard ecclesiocentric exclusivism that probably most of us are familiar with. And he once said this, quote, God does not reveal himself redemptively through other means than his children's missionary activity to a lost world, end quote. Wow, this position might seem extreme to some of you, some of you who maybe grew up in mainline Protestant denominations or a post-Vatican II Catholicism. I found it to be essentially the default position of every evangelical institution I've been a part of. Uh, and that's included in my lifetime. I have been a part of the Lutheran Church, Assemblies of God, or I should say Evangelical Lutheran Church, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Evangelical Covenant, E-Free. <laughs> I've been a part of quite a few, um, whether that's attending in, in community, non-denominational churches, obviously, or have been on staff of that. And that's this is kind of the default position, right? And, most of my beloved friends, mentors, and colleagues, people I go to church with now that I've encountered in these settings would be reluctant to say that they believe salvation is only available via the church or via the Christian religion. And they would really want to emphasize that Christ, or more specifically, repentance, verbal repentance, and a verbal profession of faith in Christ, especially in more Arminian contexts, that 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 is really what they mean when they say, well, there's no salvation outside of the church. It's not so much outside of the church. People aren't going to say that. But the, what they're going to try to emphasize is that there's no salvation outside of re- explicit repentance and faith in Christ. So this is kind of the norm, right? Uh, that this method is the exclusive medium for salvation. But where the tricky part comes in is when we get to, okay, what, how does one epistemologically come to faith in Christ? How does one come to know Christ? And it's in this viewpoint that faith in Christ is almost unanimously attached to having some level of cognitive affirmation 
in an orthodox Christology, in some minimum threshold of Christian doctrine, right? And we might point to things like, well, you know, the person needs to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and they need to say a prayer. They have to say a prayer that does that, or they have to be baptized and make a profession, okay? There has to be at least some level of cognitive affirmation in the right and true ideas about Christ. Take one of the more popular and someone that was fairly well-respected evangelical theologian. Uh, He was an Anglican. He just tragically passed away just this past year, J.I. Packer. Packer would not consider, would, wouldn't have considered himself to be a hard restrictivist, but he considered himself maybe being more of an agnostic particularist, an agnostic um, exclusivist. So that would mean someone who's not dogmatically close to the possibility of God's grace being extended to someone who hasn't cognitively affirmed or professed faith in the Jesus of orthodoxy. Um, but you know, the agnostic part is they're also someone who is not convinced there are enough reasons to affirm some other pathway to salvation in Christ. So Packer once said at the 1989 Evangelical Affirmations Consultation that, quote, living by the Bible means assuming that no one will be saved apart from faith in Christ and acting accordingly. Okay. I mean, that might seem like, hey, you know, like that that's maybe the safe way to go, right? And, and I certainly respect that position. If that's your position, I, I respect it. I can see how people like Packer get to that point from Scripture. Um, I understand it. I understand why they might go, hey, I'm not going to say no completely, that there could, could be some other means other than explicit profession in faith in the Jesus of history, or at least a certain minimum of doctrinal affirmations about him or other sorts of doctrinal affirmations, you know, his position has still been a little bit more of a pessimistic agnosticism. There are those like Packer who I think are really honestly thinking through this. They don't want to be in the position of acting as judge. You know, they don't want to sit in the judgment seat, but they're still really trying to affirm what they see as central to the biblical message on salvation, and they might use different terms other than ecclesiocentric exclusivism. They might use terms like gospel exclusivism or even special revelation exclusivism as a way of emphasizing that salvation is God's work and not confined to the limited presence of what Linzel said is his his mission, as children's missionary activity to the lost world. So there are some that are uncomfortable with saying, hey, the only way someone else comes into experience of salvation is through missionary activity. And they might go, ah, I don't feel comfortable with that, but yet I still feel like there needs to be some sort of explicit profession. They might be, can call themselves like a gospel exclusivist. Uh, and others might go, well, it might be that like God reveals himself in a dream to somebody. We've certainly, I've heard from people. Uh, who have been on the mission field and have encountered people that have been in um, relatively isolated areas of the world and have met locals in those places that said, hey, yeah, there's already, there's already Christian community here because Jesus showed up to this guy in this 
village in a dream. So that's certainly another option, right? But in each of these distinctions, except for the the special revelation exclusivism, which is actually, I think, pretty close to the um, proposition I want to make to you guys as an alternative. In each of these instances, though, one's ontological union with Christ is dependent upon a proper epistemology of Christ. One's union with Christ is dependent on them having the right perception of him. Now, there's disagreements among exclusivists who are Calvinists, exclusivists who are Arminians, who exclusivists who are Lutherans and Catholics as to the order of salvation. But somewhere in the chain of salvific events for each um, tribe and denomination is typically, if you're an exclusivist, there's this necessary requirement of at least some cognitive commitment to some minimal doctrinal Christological, Trinitarian, or some other theological criteria baseline. Maybe it's the performance of a particular sacrament, for example. Now, to me, why these all still fall into the category of ecclesiocentric or church-centric salvation is that in each of these cases, whether it's, well, you need to know a certain minimum of right doctrine, or you need to have an understanding of, uh, you know, Christ's work in history, uh, maybe you have to perform, participate in a particular sacrament, access, epistemological access to whatever the minimum criteria baseline is in each of these they're functionally made available only through the church, right? Like there is, if it's a missionary, I don't mean like a, a single individual church. I'm saying the church as the, the community of God. A, a missionary going to some, what we might say commonly as an unreached people group and declaring to them the, the message of the gospel, at least as they perceive it, that is what I mean by that's epistemological access. So if they go and say, hey, this is what you need to do to be saved. Here's this, this, and this. That is through the church. That's through the mission of the church. The problem in question that I have is whether or, whether or not uh, the church, not Christ, I'm saying whether or not the church is the exclusive means of delivering access to salvation. If so, then there are many, many people, we don't know how many, there are many, many people who had lived and died without any access to salvation. That's a big problem. That's a big problem if you want to affirm other things about God. You know, maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, hey, that's just kind of how it goes. Um, There are some maybe more hyper-Calvinist. This isn't certainly the case for, um, you know, most people in Reformed traditions that I, uh, that have <laughs> wrestled with theology, you know, beyond just sort of the, the pop Calvinism stuff. There's certainly some hyper-Calvinists that go, hey, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. They, um, that's how limited atonement goes. Some people are vessels of dishonor. That's, again, a hyper-Calvinist caricature. There are some that are like that. That's certainly not been my experience with most people in a more um, theologically tested Reformed tradition. So if you have a problem with that, 
uh, and I do, I have reasons to, I'm sure maybe some of you do as well, then I don't know if we can say that essentially the church's delivery of a certain propositions about the gospel is the only way that people have access to salvation. And I actually think exclusivists in those contexts, they don't even believe that. Like, how many people do you know that genuinely believe that a baby that dies before making a profession of faith or dies before baptism is is not saved, that they are going to receive the destruction, whatever that destructive end is, that we are trying to be saved, not trying to be, but that we in Christ are to be saved from. Does, do, is there anybody that you know that actually believes that? That's like, oh, man, I don't know, that aborted baby, um, perhaps the one with an, enough, there so many um, cognitive limitations whether it's through disability or some accident, that they, they can't even understand words or form sentences? Do we really believe that those people die separated from salvation? I don't think any exclusivist I've ever talked to believes that. So clearly, it can't be that in all cases, it has to be a profession of faith. It doesn't have to be in all cases that some sort of minimum adherence or at least intellectual adherence to a certain minimum baseline of doctrinal correct correct doctrine that that is ha- you have to hit that i don't think anybody actually believes that there's certainly those like john stott for example john stott would say probably would have said that he leaned more towards being an agnostic exclusivist you know similar to maybe like a Jaya Packer, but his, his disposition on the subject was certainly much more positive. Stott said, uh, Stott was open to the possibility that God would provide whatever epistemological access necessary to save, quote, the majority of the human race, end quote. He believed that the majority of the human, human race would be saved to salvific union with Christ. Stott once wrote, quote, I believe the most Christian stance is to remain agnostic on this question. The fact that God, alongside the most solemn warnings and about our responsibility to respond to the gospel, has not revealed how he will deal with those who have never heard it. However, I am imbued with hope. I have never been able to conjure up, as some great evangelical missionaries have, the appalling vision of the millions who are not only perishing, but will inevitably perish. On the other hand, I am not and cannot be a universalist. Between these extremes, I cherish the hope that the majority of the human race will be saved. End quote. To Stott, I say amen. <laughs> I agree. And I think there are, there's available resources to us in the scriptures and in church history, those that have gone before us that have affirmed this too, even if we weren't aware of it. I'm really appreciative of that sort of humility that a John Stott, uh, even an Alistair McGrath, McGrath is another brilliant evangelical Anglin theologian like Stott, I appreciate their humility and the positive disposition they have, even as someone that say, you know, 
we, we still would say we're more ex, we are more exclusivist, but we're also really optimistic that every human being in every era of human history has had access to sal- to salvation. I, I I don't know how we can't believe that. <laughs> Still, though, I I find maybe even a more kindred connection with those who would claim to be special revelation exclusivists, those like Timothy George, even though uh, he is a monergist and I lean more towards a synergistic view uh, on salvation. George, as a monergist or Calvinist inclined, sees that salvation not be limited to those who have had access to correct information about Christ exclusively announced by the church. He accepts that infants and others who, quote, are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word can be saved through special, quote, special communications of the gospel extended in the gracious providence of God, end quote. And this is where I actually find a bit of a more kindred connection with monergists, Calvinists like George, um, I, I've, I really disdain a sort of hyper-Arminian perspective, which ends up feeling like it places the salvation of the world on broken human shoulders, on missionaries and on missionaries and making sure missionaries don't get flat tires on the way to whoever they're supposed to be ministering to. I am in agreement with George. I think there has to be a way that even those who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word, and I'm going to make clear on something, and I'll make be clear of this throughout, I don't think we stop missionary ventures. I think the nature of what they should look like might need to be tweaked and changed and adapted. I don't think we stop preaching the, uh, and calling people to the ministry of the gospel. I don't think we stop preaching the good news, calling people to repentance. But I also think we should have a high enough view of God to believe that that God can, through special communications of the gospel, somehow extend his grace towards people through other means. If this is the case, then clearly the special revelation somehow imparted to the baby who dies in infancy isn't bound to cognitive affirmation. It's not limited to that baby somehow saying the sinner's prayer or having a particular Christology, or any other theological doctrine for that matter, somehow, if we believe this to be true for babies, that God has somehow given real access to this infant to participate in Christ via some other means, then the door is open for us to consider the goodness and graciousness of God to make that means available to all sorts of different particular situations. Even if you go like a more Augustinian route and you say, hey, infant baptism is required. You know, that was Augustine's concern. This is why people start baptizing babies. Otherwise, the babies are going to—this is—I'm really—this is a crude caricature, but um, one point of disagreement with Augustine, not to say anything more broadly about uh, paedobaptism, infant baptism, is the sense in which it was like, well, if we don't baptize the babies, they could go to hell. All right, even if you were to go that route, then you have to confess that the sacrament is salvific for the child because one, either authority to confer salvation is within the jurisdiction of Christ's delegated authority to his church, and that that would be a more Catholic perspective. So you could go that route and go, well, 
salvation can be conferred on whoever through the vehicle of the authority of the Catholic Church, all right? Or two, God can and does give his spirit even to those who have no epistemological access to the Christian meaning-making narrative. Or, if we were to even use the language of Augustine, the case of infant baptism, that God, quote, secretly infuses his grace, or you could say his spirit, even into infants. I am more of the opinion of two. I am not a Roman Catholic. Roman Catholics, you are welcome to continue listening. I hope you are. I hope you do tune in to this podcast and find it respectful towards your perspectives, even though that's on that point, not one that I share. I do think it's got to be two then. God gives his spirit. He gives a means of grace to those who, we ha- who have no known epistemological access. They don't have any access that we're aware of. Like, well, what is the access that the baby has? Even in, if you want to say infant baptism, it's like God has given his grace somehow. So if those proponents of infant baptism see it as salvific because of option one, well, if that's the case, and you're like, well, I'm going to go with the Catholic option, the Roman Catholic option, here's what I would do. I would point you to Vatican, Vatican II Council. Go to Vatican II, where the Vatican II affirms a Christocentric inclusivist position, which I'll, I'll talk more about in a little bit. But if you go, well, I think it's because of option two, then we are affirming together that epistemological access to the Christ of history, the Christ of Christian scriptures, isn't necessary in order to access the ontological Christ, the Christ who is enthroned, seated at the right hand, the Christ who is the Logos, the Christ who holds all things together. People can have access to the ontological Christ even if they don't have good access to the Christ of history and Christian scriptures. And still, God is gracious and good enough to give them a means in Christ Again, I want to be clear. I'm affirming that it's only through the ontological Christ, the Christ who is, the Christ who transcends all of our perceptions of him, who's not bound by them, that there is a means for salvific union with him. If God somehow provides a means of grace, a a way to be united to Christ, to the unborn, the infant, the mentally disabled who do not have epistemological access to the truth about Jesus contained in the scriptures and passed down to us through his church, which I want to be clear, I affirm to be true, then there is also room to believe that the medieval Native American or the first century Chinese Taoist could truly have had genuine access to salvation in Jesus Christ. In the next part of this series, I'll lay out for you the biblical case for Christocentric inclusivism and why we can trust that every person who has ever lived has had access to the ontological Christ, the only means of salvation. Thanks for listening to today's episode. This is going to be either a three-part or four-part series. So in the next part of the series, again, we're going to go through the biblical literature to make a case for this great hope that I believe we do have, that every person who has ever lived at any time has had access to Christ. 
why we can actually, I think, make a positive affirmation of that. We can hope for that. And then in the following episode, so part three, we will then go through a bit of church history to see how, especially the early church fathers affirmed this position, how things changed, how the exclusivist position became the more popular position, and why we still have reason to believe today that we should return to the original position of the early church fathers. So thanks for listening to today's episode. Certainly if you have questions, objections, feedback, you can post them in the Deep Talks Patreon forum for this episode. We have a discussion forum for each episode now uh, where you can participate with other listeners, with me in having some dialogue about some of the ideas communicated in today's episode or any other previous episode, at least going back, I think we've been doing this about six months or so, and have had really productive conversations. So feel free to reach out with your questions there. Certainly, if you're a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can always just direct message me, send me a private message there with your questions. I I respond to every question I get uh, in my inbox from Patreon members, but you can also reach out on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. You can find me on Instagram as well at Paul Anleitner if you want to connect over there as well. The Deep Talks Patreon community is the community that brings financial support to this podcast to ensure that I can continue to do it to do it ad-free. We just hit the one-third mark of our first-tier goal, which was to get 300 supporters on Patreon. I believe as of today, we have 101, which is awesome. It's so encouraging. Once we get to 300, I will be able to do weekly episodes. I've been trying to do that, but I can't always get to it <laughs> until I can properly set aside additional time, um, take some other things off of the plate in order to be able to give more attention and energy to this, um, to this work I'm doing here. So if you feel like that's valuable, I would encourage you can support over there. And as a thank you for your support, there are a whole bunch of additional perks like bonus Q&A episodes. We just put out a Q&A episode last week addressing some questions from listeners about the problem of evil. There's also our monthly Patreon Zoom hangout. We have a group discussion every month with those in the Theology 201 group or higher. And you could also sign up if you wanted to for the, the monthly um, discussion. You could just do it once. If you wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, you could do it just for one month. You could do it for multiple months. We've got a few people that have signed up for that as well. And those are always really, really great times for me just to have focused conversation with somebody um, processing all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, whether it's theologically, philosophically, and, you know, really the, the existential questions of their life. So if that interests you, you could certainly get involved there as well. Finally, my last request would be if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. It's the primary place people are going to discover new podcasts. So if you leave a review and a rating, it will help people, it'll help the algorithm <laughs> propose to people this podcast. It will help other people figure out if this is something for them. So thanks for considering doing that. As always, again, I welcome your feedback, whether they be questions, whether they even be objections and critiques. I'm sure there's going to be some objections to this series. That's just fine. I think there can be good dialogue about all that. So feel free to reach out to me in the discussion forum, Patreon, on Twitter, any of those places. I want to give an extra special thanks to those in the Theology 201 group and higher. It is people like Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, 
Sam Nicole, Sam P, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Taylor S, Tim K, Mike Thomas, Michael Peterson, Michael Hernstein, Michael H, Luke, Lola, Justin, JT, Josie, Johnny, John Michael, Dr. Jim, Hannah, Eli, Carolyn, Carolyn uh, S. Wow, we got two Carolyns this month. It's awesome. <laughs> BJ, Anders, Jesse, and Clint. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do it without you guys. Hopefully you guys can make it for this month's discussion on Patreon or on Zoom, I should say. And I will send out some details about that in hopefully this week so you can get that on your calendar. Thank you all. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.